everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty well. We just had to put up a new baby animals calendar, which means Happy New Year. For those of you keeping score at home, January of 2019 is a meerkat pup. Please adjust your office betting pools accordingly. A meerkat pup. And it is cute as shit. And around the time when you have to put up a new baby animals calendar, it's traditional to make some New Year's resolutions. And I am nothing if not a creature of tradition. So, the first of my resolutions is that I am going to do my best to talk about bears less in these intros. I think I did five or six bear-centric intros last year, so if I can keep it under five, then that should be good. And yes, I am aware this does count as one. I'm going to be playing this year on hard mode. Speaking of which, my next resolution is going to be a tough one. I am going to try to come up with a new sequel reference to use for my imaginary sequels to things. Probably about five years ago, I decided that uh, it was time to start retiring, referring to things as whatever to Electric Boogaloo, and to start using whatever to The Legend of Curly's Gold. That's been working out pretty well for me, but then I was listening to another podcast and I heard them using The Legend of Curly's Gold in reference to an imaginary sequel, and I was like, shit, now I gotta get a new one. So been experimenting a little bit. I like the Too Fast, Too Furious format. I believe I used that recently when I was calling uh, A Christmas Prince, Two Christmas, Two Prince. And that's okay. But I think for 2019, I'm going to try being a little more niche and, you know, really let my freak flag fly with this one. Might not appeal to everybody, but I think my new imaginary sequel reference is going to be using the subtitle, Bud the Chud. Now, like I said, I understand that it's a little bit more of a boutique reference. Maybe it doesn't have the same uh, wide base that a something something to The Legend of Curly's Gold has. But I think we're all going to really get to know and love something something to Bud the Chud. In summation, Happy New Year. And here's hoping that 2019 isn't just 2018 to Bud the Chud. Anyway, let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by First Name, Last Name. Pick it up, drop this. Tell me, can you cop this? Talking about comics and there's no way to stop this. Sit yourself down and hear this synopsis. Thanks, First Name. Defenders, number 43. January, 1977. This world is mine. Written by Jerry Conway. Trotted by Keith Giffen, inked by Klaus Janssen, lettered by Irv Watanabe, colored by Klaus Janssen, and edited as such by Jerry Conway. Defensive lineup The Incredible Hulk, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, Power Man, The Red Guardian, and Clea. Previously in The Defenders.
Longtime Defender's foe Egghead formed a consortium of costumed criminals called the Emissaries of Evil. This cohort of crumbums consisted of Solar, who had solar powers, Rhino, who had rhinoceros powers, and the team's aforementioned mastermind Egghead, whose head is shaped like an egg, and also he invents stuff. An avalanche of asterisks informed us of a great deal of irrelevant backstory on these imaginatively named assholes. Egghead was convinced that Doctor Strange was in possession of a coveted mystical artifact called the Star of Capistan, so at his instruction, Solar and Rhino attacked Steve's Sanctorum. After Solar used his powers to light Nighthawk on fire, hooray, our confused protagonists informed their assailants that they had never heard of the magical MacGuffin in question. Embarrassing. The misinformed miscreants returned to their headquarters, a space station that Egghead had stolen from NASA, and informed their substantially skulled supervillainous supervisor of the fruitless nature of their quest. Egghead didn't take this bad news particularly well. He stuffed Solar and Rhino in some torture tubes for six hours, and then launched into a long soliloquy about how he really needed the Star of Capistan for some unspecified reason, and that despite all evidence to the contrary, Stephen Strange must have the Star, because its last known possessor was Steve's oldest and dearest and never-before-mentionedest pal, Omar Karindu, who was recently spotted headed to New York. Meanwhile, the defenders had rushed Kyle to the hospital to have his burn wounds treated, but once the doctors removed the shirt part of his Nighthawk costume, it turned out that the billionaire do well bird enthusiast didn't have any burn wounds after all, and that his being on fire, which all of his teammates had witnessed, was in fact psychosomatic. Hmm. While in the waiting room, Steve received a message that his oldest, dearest, never-before-mentionedest pal, Omar Karindu, would really like to have a word in his nearby hotel. Naturally, Steve rushed over for a reunion with his recently retconned into existence bosom chum. When he arrived, Omar informed him that the Star of Capistan, an enormous magical ruby, had just gone bonkers in some undefined way. When Steve took a peek at the malfunctioning mystical MacGuffin, his eyes went all unfocused, so either he was staring off into the middle distance and reminiscing about all the good off-panel times he and Omar had shared together, or the ruby had taken over his mind. While Steve was off catching up on old times that never were, Egghead deployed the Emissaries of Evil's final secret member to destroy the Defenders once and for all. The Cobalt Man. Oh no! And also... Who's he? Well, as yet another helpful asterisk informed us, the Cobalt Man was a sort of nuclear-powered Iron Man-type guy who was big and blue, and the Hulk recently saw die in a nuclear explosion. A comic book character believed to be dead returning from the grave? Unprecedented! The Defenders all punched the crap out of the Cobalt Man, but it turned out that it was all part of Egghead's evil scheme. Apparently, if the big blue baddie gets punched too much, it could trigger a nuclear explosion that would destroy our pugilism-prone protagonists and New York City with them. Gadzooks! What nefarious plan does the evil Egghead Egghead have for the Star of Capistan? How did Solar-powered Solar manage to inflict psychosomatic wounds on Nighthawk? And will this issue have less asterisks than Conway's last outing? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so it doesn't really come up, so we never find out. It doesn't really come up, so we never find out. And yes, this issue we get six asterisks as opposed to the nine asterisks we had last issue. Progress!
After spending a fair bit of time pummeling a surprisingly unresponsive Cobalt Man, the Defenders start to figure out that maybe the fact that their radioactive adversary is glowing with increasingly intense incandescence is not the best sign, and maybe they should stop hitting him. Well, most of the Defenders figure that. The Hulk is still, characteristically, intent on continued smashing. Fortunately, Nighthawk, still shirtless from his recent hospital visit, intervenes and is like, Hey, the Hulk, I just remembered from that recreational reading I often do on the subject of nuclear physics that atom splitting won't happen if the atoms are damp. Would you mind picking up the Cobalt Man and jumping him into the Hudson Bay? Hulk responds, Sure thing, Nighthawk. Although Hulk hate getting wet and loves smashing, Hulk will gladly stop smashing and instead go for a swim because of overwhelming respect and friendship Hulk feel for Nighthawk. Um... Okay. Fortunately, Kyle's brilliant plan works. The Cobalt Man's eminent nuclear meltdown is averted due to soggy atoms. Hooray! High above the Earth, aboard the space station he carjacked from NASA, Egghead is furious. Since sending Solar and Rhino to retrieve the Star of Kapistan from Doctor Strange didn't work, and sending the Cobalt Man to blow up the Defenders didn't work, the mastermind behind the Emissaries of Evil quickly concocts a brilliant new diabolical plan. He sends Solar and Rhino to retrieve the Star of Kapistan from Doctor Strange. Brilliant. For some reason, Rhino and Solar aren't particularly enthusiastic about this plan. Last time they tried this, the Defenders beat them up, and then Egghead stuck them in some torture tubes for the better part of a day. This last part in particular seems to be a bit of a sticking point. Egghead listens thoughtfully to their concerns and then replies, Do what I say or I'll murder you with my science rays! Forced to concede that Egghead makes a very compelling argument, Rhino and Solar teleport back to New York in search of Doctor Strange. The dominated duo of do-batters bust into the hotel where Steve was recently spotted, but instead of finding the Sorcerer Supreme, the perfidious pair is instead confronted by a mysterious dude sporting glowing red armor and a stylish turban who calls himself the Red Raja. After introducing himself, the Raja informs his attackers that he is the guardian of the Star of Kapistan and has already disposed of Doctor Strange. Good to know. Then he beats the proverbial snot out of Rhino and Solar. Rather than watching these events unfold on the seemingly all-seeing view screen aboard his hijacked space satellite, the way he has every other battle for the last issue and a half, Egghead decides instead to assume that, despite the fact that they have a win-loss record on par with longtime Globetrotters foil, the Washington Generals, Solar and Rhino will no doubt emerge triumphant in their quest to apprehend Doctor Strange. The colossally craniumed creep gets out some metal eggs and starts fondling them while contemplating his inevitable victory. Meanwhile, back at the Sanctum Sanctimonious, the gang is trying to figure out what to do with the unconscious body of Cobalt Man. During their recent tussle, the defenders had gotten the impression that their big blue foe was not in control of his own actions and was being mentally commanded by an outside source. Fortunately, in her civilian identity, the Red Guardian is Dr. Tanya Belinsky, the world's preeminent neurosurgeon. Even more fortunately, Clea, Stephen Strange's disciple-slash-girlfriend, which is a perfectly normal and not-at-all-creepy hybrid relationship, 
just remember that Steve has an experimental medical device lying around that would allow a neurosurgeon to merge psychically with an unconscious and possibly mentally dominated patient and could potentially release such a theoretical patient from any psychic bondage they might or might not be experiencing. What luck! Tanya straps in and mentally joins the Cobalt Man in a saunter down past Trauma Lane. Flashback noise, flashback noise, flashback noise. Turns out the Cobalt Man was a scientist named Ralph Roberts. Ralph was a big fan of Iron Man, the superhero, not the Black Sabbath song, although possibly both, so he built himself his own suit of science armor to emulate his hero. The only problem was, the suit gave off a ton of radiation and made his brain go all loopy and then he attacked the X-Men. Like you do. The X-Men beat him up. Then Ralph decided that nuclear power was dumb and bad, and figured that maybe if he blew himself up in a nuclear explosion, that would illustrate his point. So, that's pretty much what he did. Then I guess at some point Egghead stumbled across his corpse and brought him back to life and then took over his mind? It's a little unclear how Egghead did all this, so I'm just going to assume that he used Calypso music, like in Weekend at Bernie's 2 a movie that did not have a subtitle and therefore is ineligible for my fictional sequel game. Yeah, that's probably it. While Tanya and Ralph are getting to know each other, Egghead breaks into the sanctum. He spots the Hulk strolling down the hallway and throws one of his little metal eggs at the Jade Giant. When the egg makes contact with the Green Goliath, it pops open, and a big soft blanket pops out and envelops the Hulk, incapacitating the befuddled behemoth and smothering him in its captivatingly cozy confinement. The ovoid-headed home intruder next encounters Valkyrie and throws another one of his metal eggs at the sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger. Ooh, is it going to turn into a nice warm sweater? Oh, or a pair of fluffy socks? Nah, just electrocutes her. Bummer. In a nearby room, Luke Cage is telling Kyle that he thinks he might be done hanging out with the Defenders. It's been fun, but being part of a team just really isn't his bag. Oh, but here's the thing, Luke. The Defenders isn't really a team. It's a non-team. You see, a team is a group of people associated with each other in work or an activity, like crime fighting. Whereas a non-team, like the Defenders, is, um, that. But... You know, not. Luke explains that he thinks he'd be better off just working on his own. Or failing that, eventually partnering with a wealthy, young, culture-appropriating blonde martial artist. Luke turns to get Kyle's reaction, but finds that while he was talking, Egghead snuck up behind the affluent avian aficionado and tied him up. Kyle's not unconscious or anything, so it seems like he could have said something, but maybe just didn't want to interrupt. No, wait. It's Kyle. That guy loves to interrupt. Maybe just got distracted because he thought he was on fire again. Egghead throws another of his little metal eggs at Luke Cage, but instead of poking his eyes out or wrapping him in a duvet or whatever, the steel projectile shatters harmlessly against Luke's unbreakable skin. Hooray! Then Luke proceeds to beat Egghead like, well, an egg. Double hooray! A battered Egghead scrambles. Eh? into the adjoining room, and is delighted to see that the Cobalt Man is sitting up and regaining consciousness. The distinctively domed douchebag commands the Cobalt Man to attack Power Man, but Ralph isn't having any of that. Freed from Egghead's tyrannical control, 
Ralph Roberts grabs his ovoid-headed erstwhile oppressor and, in an act of martyrdom, triggers a contained nuclear implosion which destroys both Roberts himself and Egghead, but leaves the rest of the defenders unharmed. Red Guardian gives a little speech about how, as a communist, the concepts of freedom and self-sacrifice are pretty unfathomable to her. Huh. What does Jerry Conway think communists are? I mean, those are some fairly universal concepts he's talking about. Maybe he's confused communists with bears. I mean, I can get where bears would have trouble comprehending those concepts. Oh, I hope the next issue has a line where Tanya says, As a communist, I have two layers of fur, a short layer of fur to keep me warm and a long layer of fur to keep water away from my skin and short fur. I hope so. Also, I don't know if that counts as bear reference number two for the year. Man, this resolution is not off to a good start. Although, resolution two, Bud the Chud, so far so good. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Full of beer and cookies. Hey, that's the way to go, man. Not bad. This is your second recording you've done this weekend with us. Yes, it is. Corey was good enough to join us for a very special What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show, in which we discussed the film Howard the Duck. Did we? <laughs> I think so. It's tough to tell. I haven't edited it yet, and man, I'm kind of putting it off. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's some nuggets in there. There are some nuggets, but of what some, are they nuggets I, of? I don't know, but they're there. Speaking of nuggets of something, mm. what'd you think of this comic? <laughs> uh, I liked it better than the last one. I did too. I'm not entirely sure why. I think it was just partly it was less dense. Uh, at first, I was like, Ah, you know, it drops less references in this. And the asterisk count is lower, but it's still pretty high. It's still pretty high. It's kind of a nothing of an issue. It negates many of the points that it seemed like they were maybe trying to bring up to further the plot in the last issue and makes them all just go away at the end and really does make it that there's really no point to this story. It kind of drives that home, I feel like. But like you, I didn't have a problem with it. I liked it much better. It was just... Easier, kind of breezy, and kind of fun in a way that the last issue was not fun. Yep, I agree with that. I wonder if, and we've talked about, you know, our guesses at what the creative process was like back in the day there, but it seems to me often there's one or two kind of maybe competing, if not parallel storylines. Mm-hmm. And after a few issues, they're just like, eh, we'll just pick this one. Everybody yeah. blows up. Yeah, it seems like the whole point of these last two issues is to introduce the Red Raja character, who is introduced in this issue, and they bring up a little bit of the concept of it last issue when we meet Steve's long-lost best friend who we've never seen before, Omar Karindu. But yeah, the whole thing with Egghead and Rhino and Solar and the Cobalt Man and the introduction of a new team of supervillains called the Emissaries of Evil, eh, never mind. That kind of seems to be the point of this issue. Yeah, I don't get it. So there's the, I forget the name of the diamond or gem or whatever it is they're after. Uh, Star of Kapistan? Yeah, Star of Kapistan is like this MacGuffin that basically drives forward the whole thing. The whole thing being Egghead's dire need to obtain this 
thing. He seems to forget about that for the whole issue. And then, yeah, at the end, it's like, oh, never mind. Hey, Doctor Strange is missing. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what? Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I think you got it. Okay. <laughs> it really seems like the villains were chosen pretty much at random. Egghead, Rhino, Solar, Cobalt Man. I guess Cobalt Man makes sense if you do want to have just an eraser at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Which Cobalt Man ends up kind of doing, where he nuclearly implodes, leaving no radiation, and uh, just kills himself and Egghead. Ostensibly. So, I mean, I guess if you want that to happen, then you include him. Rhino and Solar could have been anybody. And it seemed like they were introducing a whole thing with Solar, with maybe his powers are working in a psychosomatic manner, and maybe they aren't when they burned Nighthawk without burning him. And I guess, never mind that. It seems like the entire purpose of that entire subplot and of Solar's inclusion in it to begin with is to get Kyle out of his shirt. He still is shirtless. That is the entire ongoing effect of the previous issue is that Kyle lost his shirt. I think he's not going to put it back on. I think that might just be his new outfit. Do you think he's trying to fuck with Dick Grayson too? <laughs> Deep neckline, huh? Yeah. All right. Maybe he's trying to fuck with Luke Cage. Like, mm. we do have new characters that have deep Vs that were introduced into the book at around the same time as a supporting cast member. And then another character is just like, well, then I'm taking my whole shirt off. Fine. Yep, that could be. Although it looks like Luke might be leaving the book. Yeah, I liked his straightforward <laughs> explanation of just, yeah, being on the team with those guys, even though they're okay people, was not his cup of tea. Yeah, doesn't care for it. And I like that Kyle thinks that he's just angling for a raise because that's the terms that Kyle sees everything in. Mm -hmm. This issue does bring up Kyle being self-aware of the fact that his main contribution to the team, the Defenders, is monetary. And I think it's interesting the idea that Kyle Richmond is way more useful a Defender than Nighthawk. Mm -hmm. Which he brings up, he's like, oh, I wish there was a way I could buy my way out of this problem when the Cobalt Man is about to explode. And then he uses some long-forgotten science gibberish <laughs> to uh, make it work. Yeah, which, I mean, I guess it's good to know. I guess it's kind of a public service announcement. If you think a nuclear bomb is about to go off... Put it in the water. Put it underwater. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, good to know. It's the safest thing to do. And problem solved. Forever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just shut it right down. Yep. Yeah, I thought Kyle was remarkably self-aware, actually, in this in this issue. Yeah, there were a few characters who displayed odd self-awareness. We get that Egghead was doing that in a past issue. In this issue, Dr. Belinsky has a weird turn at the end. She where... was doing so good. <laughs> she was doing so good. She was doing so good. And then at the end of the issue, I mean, I guess this is a weird self-awareness thing. No, it's an 80s communist or bad thing. It's not even the 80s yet, Corey. It's oh. the 70s. After Cobalt Man explodes himself to save the day, I'm sorry, implodes himself mm. to save the day, Luke Cage says, you mean that's it? The party's over? Red Guardian says, yes, Luke Cage, because of Cobalt Man, Egghead will no longer menace the world or make men slaves. Today, a brave man died for freedom, and as a communist, that is something I must consider and pray that I may someday understand. <laughs> yeah. That's so stupid. I mean, her whole existence up to this point is establishing that she's a super smart 
like awesome, you know, powerful She's person. Still just a dumb old commie. Yeah. It's but, like freedom? What is that about? In communist Russia. <laughs> Insert Yakov Smirnov. Boo. <laughs> Boo, but it is like another weird like in the previous issue we had Egghead saying, That would require me to recognize my own failings, and I am uncapable of doing that, so here goes. Right. He does have some nice monologues about how great he is, which is kind of fun. I like to think of him just walking around, like, constantly muttering to himself about how great he is. (laughs) I think that probably is not inaccurate. Yeah. Uh, Egghead was a lot more fun in this issue than we've ever seen him before, both in terms of that kind of uh, egomaniacal self-narration that I like in a villain, and also he seems to have maybe watched the Egghead episodes of the Batman TV show where Vincent Price played an egg-themed villain named Egghead because he starts doing egg shit in this, which has never been his deal before. He's like, oh, I have an egg-shaped head. I'm named Egghead, so I'll make these bombs that look like eggs Mm -hmm. and throw them at good guys. Yeah, it was pretty cool. He was a better, more enjoyable villain in this issue, I felt. Worst boss ever. Oh, man. He is not a good employer. Mm -mm. We find out that, I mean, yeah, he had enslaved Cobalt Man. And Cobalt Man's none too thrilled about that. Mm -hmm. And he also has been using Rhino and Solar under duress of murder, which, not great. Yeah, I mean, I would not want to work for Egghead. And he gets confronted and dressed down a bit by Luke Cage, who calls him a real piece of turd for trying to blow up his niece. Here's an issue, though. I talked about how there was a lower apostrophe count. This issue had six apostrophes. The last issue had, I believe, nine apostrophes. Either way, that's a lot of apostrophes referencing other issues. Hmm. It felt less jarring in this issue because it seemed to be part of the narrative rather than detracting from the narrative generally when it would bring something up. But if you're going to reference a comic book, you should maybe read that comic book before you reference it. Because Luke Cage says, I met Trish in Arizona in this last battle. No, you fucking didn't. You stayed home in New York. You were not part of Defenders number 41. That confused me, and I thought I was remembering it wrongly. I was also a little bit confused because you said apostrophe and not asterisk. And Oh, and I, I did. Was I'm like, sorry. I was like, wait, is there new slang that I, <laughs> that I missed? No, I just fucked up. I used the wrong A word. Oh, that's okay. I'm a real A word. <laughs> you are awesome. Aw, <laughs> thanks, Corey. Uh-huh. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other villains in this issue. Let's start with the Cobalt Man. All right. He looks a lot less menacing in this issue. I mean, he's not building-sized, for one thing. Right. I guess his size fluctuates, maybe. I'm a little bit unclear on that. Also, he went from looking kind of like Apocalypse and having that kind of degree of menace to him to, in this issue, he just looks kind of like a football player. He, he looked to me kind of like NFL Super Pro, the NFL-themed superhero they tried to introduce in the 90s. But yeah, his whole deal seems just less menacing. I had trouble understanding what they were saying about the kind of cycle of sanity or insanity, where they were like, some bad shit happened, he went crazy, then some other stuff happened, and then he went crazy again. Yeah. Like, how does that work? Maybe they were just saying that, like, he he had an episode, and then he sought treatment and got better, and then thought because 
he was feeling better, it was safe for him to go off his meds. And then he had another episode. That would be the context that it would make sense in. And that is me being very charitable to Jerry Conway. I think he just made up some nonsense. Because he also left out the part where he was in a pole vaulting accident with his brother and hit his head. That's the best part about the Cobalt Man that I read about. And they just leave that out when he has his weird little psychic adventure with the Red Guardian. Man, that is a shame. Pole vaulting is rather stressful. I was watching a bit of that in the last uh, Olympics mm -hmm. that happened. Man, I am amazed that humans voluntarily do that. Yeah, it seems like a berserk thing to do. Those poles are so long. I know. Now imagine street pole vaulting. And then falling on your head. Ooh. Yeah, rough. For other villains in the issue, we talked a little bit about Solar, and he doesn't really do too much in this except for get KO'd almost immediately by the Red Raja. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Rhino. He's really fun in this issue. Yeah, I, I didn't think of him as like a Jewish no. character, but he, he throws in a Yiddish term. He does. He throws in a couple of weird phrases. Yeah, he uses the word shlemiel, where he says that Solar's a real shlemiel, but he's still my partner and I've got his back because I saw that in an old movie that if your partner's hurt, you've got to help him out. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the shlemiel thing seem, seemed off to me. I was like, wait, why would that seems like a weird thing for Rhino to say. So I actually looked up Rhino's character because I'm familiar with him popping up places, but I didn't actually know much about his backstory. Apparently, he is from a somewhat indeterminate Eastern Bloc country where he is a communist thug who works for some Soviet scientists. Oh, okay. I've never seen him be portrayed that way. But the other thing that popped up when I looked up the Rhino was... It was like, he has been played by this person, who I think is a cartoon voice actor, and Paul Giamatti. What? Apparently, in The Amazing Spider-Man 2, the uh, the second of the Andrew Garfield movies, Paul Giamatti played the rhino. And it's like, I can see Paul Giamatti saying Schlemiel. And also, thinking of the rhino as Paul Giamatti is very funny to me. I really can see rhino just being like, I'm not drinking any fucking Merlot. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's perfect. The other thing that was funny to me about the Rhino's portrayal in this is he has a turn of phrase, which makes me think that he's just into some kind of weird shit. Because when he and Solar beam down, and they're all pissed off because Egghead is threatening to kill them, Solar says, Egghead wasn't lying. Facing a man with power like his is hopeless. Even my sunborn abilities can't fight his sort of technology. And Rhino says, Okay, so he's got us by the short hairs. Is that so bad? Yeah. That means pubes, right? Yep. I've always heard them called the short and curlies and assumed that meant pubes. So Rhino's reaction to being under duress by a bad employer is, so he's grabbing our pubes. That's not so bad. I I took a note of that and it's going to come up later when we get into the minutia. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that just really cracked me up. Yep. <laughs> and was just like, huh. Yeah, between that and calling somebody Shlemiel and... And being played by Paul Giamatti, you know, notorious, burly, <laughs> burly thug character actor Paul Giamatti. Oh, um, Kelsey Grammer is Beast. Oh, yeah. I'm just saying. Just... I think Kelsey Grammer would make a great rhino. <laughs> Gosh, now I just oh, want no. Kelsey Grammer, Paul Giamatti, superhero buddy movies. Who's going to be Solar? Oh, let's see. Um, like Vincent Gallo, maybe? 
No. I don't want him to be in any movies. I think he'd be a good Solar. I don't think he would be a good Solar. Let's see. Who else have we got? Oh, no, no, no. David Paymer. Who's David Paymer? He's the guy. He's that character actor who we recognized in Howard oh, the Duck. Yeah. <laughs> David Paymer would be a great Solar. So you get the big three. It doesn't even have to be those three. Like any trio of superheroes or supervillains, hmm. as long as they're traditionally big and burly. I want them played by David Paymer, Kelsey Grammer, and Paul Giamatti. The big three. I like it. I want a remake of the film Three Mighty Men, where it's Santo, Captain America, and Superman, as portrayed by Paul Giamatti, Kelsey Grammer, and David Paymer. Like an American version of the Turkish movie making an American characters yes. in a movie. Yes. With those three. Yes. That sounds pretty good. And I'd they fight it. Spider-Man. I would watch it. Who plays Spider-Man? Um, Ray Liotta. God damn it! You're right. It was right there the whole time. Ray Liotta <laughs> is the <laughs> homicidal, mass murderous version of Spider-Man, yep. who has to be brought to justice by Santo, as played by David Paymer. <laughs> they, Superman. They don't, they don't let him talk. Superman, very much. as played by Paul Giamatti, <laughs> and Captain America, as played by Kelsey Grammer. I love it. Man, how about it, Hollywood? Give us a call! She's still thinking Ray Liotta is mean, spider, is mean Spidey. I would, uh, Ray Liotta is any kind of Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. Oh, but you wouldn't be able to see his eyes with the Spidey costume. Oh, got very expressive you eyes. Could, you could do a workaround of that. Yeah, it's like Turkish... Spider-Man, right? Yeah, so he can modify his costume. Have you seen Into the Spider-Verse? Mm, no. Oh, it's a really good movie. But also, there is a lot of modification of Spider-Man costumes in that film. So, I think you could work one out for Ray Liotta where he, you get to see his eyeballs. All right. Well, done deal. Yeah. Because that was the one thing holding up production. <laughs> right? <laughs> one of the other things we learn in this issue is that we finally get to see what the Hulk's one weakness is. A Snuggie. Oh, it is too soft! <laughs> I can't punch it. Egghead throws a weird metal egg at the Hulk, and what comes out is essentially just a big Snuggie. <laughs> and it just envelops him, and the Hulk's response is, Bag attacks Hulk! Growing all over him! Hulk can't fight Bag! Too soft! Too much! Mm -hmm. Hulk can't move! So warm. He doesn't say that last one. No, but come on, man. That's why you can't get out of a Snuggie. The I've Hulk's never, only uh, human. Tried, uh, never tried one. I don't think I have either. But I know the phenomenon of just having a nice warm blanket wrapped around you when you're on the couch. Mm -hmm. Being like, oh, can't move. I wonder if Egghead also had previously off-panel thrown a different egg that just had like a big meal inside of it that the Hulk ate. Oh. Like just like beans. a giant bowl of beans. Mm -hmm. And then and then it's like and now a snuggie, and then he throws another then he throws another egg that just has like the mini series of Anne of Green Gables in it, the and then Hulk is just like on the couch. He's like, oh, so warm and comfortable. What will girl do next? <laughs> Why, lady, so mean to orphans? <laughs> <laughs> it's really it's his one weakness. Mm -hmm. Public television and snuggies, <laughs> indeed. One of the other interesting things that we find out in this issue is that when he was a doctor, Stephen Strange was just given a bunch of weird shit by medical companies. 
Like, he was apparently at some point gifted this experimental machine which can allow a brain surgeon to merge psychically with her patient and climb around inside his mind and access different parts of it. Mm -hmm. But it only works if it is overseen and supervised by someone with powerful mystic powers. I, I took it to be that that was sort of Clea like hacking the device and using it for that. Because like there's right. like a thumbprint ID otherwise or like because she didn't because they didn't know how to use it. No, more so like it was a device created for the purpose of doing brain scans or something like that. And she was just giving a mystical tweak to it. Okay. But I also think that this indicates Doctor Strange was when he was still in his medical profession, like a big celebrity doctor. Oh, totally. And um, so I think this was totally one of these deals where Rand Corporation or whoever made this mm -hmm. thing was like. I don't think he would necessarily even need to be, like, a, like, celebrity doctor. I mean, like, it could be, like, the drug companies and things, like, pushing promotional devices on different surgeons in hopes that they will prescribe more of their drugs. Mm -hmm. I think that Steve probably just has a whole pocket dimension filled with, like, surgeon swag that he was gifted at various junkets. Well, I've got all these Paxil pens. <laughs> yeah. For some reason. <laughs> My grandfather was a doctor, and he talked about how when he was graduating from medical school, some big pharmaceutical company took all of the graduating class out. He, he went to Harvard Medical School, and some big pharmaceutical company, like, hosted this gala ball for all of the graduating doctors, and he described it as the only time in his life he has been drunk. Hmm. And what was weird to me is that it was not an experience he ever sought to recreate, but he had very fond memories of it. Mm. He was just like, yes, I was always very kindly disposed towards that pharmaceutical company. <laughs> it was a very pleasant evening. Mm. The, I think it's the only time I've been drunk. My grandfather and I are very different men in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which... This is the only time I've got a buzz. Yeah, I could not really wrap my head around the workings of that device and what its initial intent was and if it was supposed to be like a incredible journey type thing where Dr. Tanya can then climb into Cobalt Man's mind and push memories around and why it was important that she was a trained neurosurgeon in order to do that. It was kind of weird and dumb, but traditional comic book dumb in a way that I totally didn't mind. It's a thematic thing where like if you're going to have somebody mucking around in your mind wouldn't it be best if that person was a trained neurosurgeon i guess because like what if they bump into something and be like oh that wasn't important <laughs> you think or, somebody i mean okay obviously i'm i think the hulk probably would have done a bad job in there <laughs> okay <laughs> just yeah. like flexing and pushing neurons around and stuff stupid memories <laughs> hulk smash <laughs> but i don't know it seemed like that maybe is a waste of her neurosurgeon training Maybe. But, I mean, she's just a communist. She doesn't Maybe understand Maybe someday she freedom. can understand concepts like freedom or love. Hmm. They don't have that over there, do they? Yet. Earlier, we were talking about the origins of Rhino. Yes. And, um, and then, of course, his counterpart, Solar. Sure. And then, uh, when we were talking before the show, you brought up the Laverne and Shirley theme with uh, Shlemiel and Shlemazel. Hosser Pfeffer Incorporated. Right. So. We're gonna do it. My question. Yes. Is, and I think we know the answer already. So if a Shlemiel is an incompetent, foolish person and the sure. Shlemazel is the unlucky person in bad situations, 
I think it's it's pretty clear that that Solar is the the incompetent one and Rhino is the unlucky one. But which one is Laverne and which one is Shirley? Ooh, boy. It's not really charitable to either Laverne or Shirley. No, I'm going to say that Solar is probably the Laverne and that Rhino is probably the Shirley. Just because Rhino is more comfortable in a ostensibly subservient role. Mm. And Laverne always seemed like she was the alpha of the pair. All right. So, yeah. Okay. So Shirley's like, Egghead's got us by the short and girlies. Yep. That's okay. Yeah. Also, I am now picturing a Laverne and Shirley reboot played by (laughs) Paul Giamatti (laughs) and Kelsey Grammer. And I'm liking what I'm seeing. Who's playing Lenny and Squiggy? It's got to be that dude from Howard the Duck. He's going to play both of them. Wait, which dude? Richie? Richie. Richard Edson. Yeah. Former drummer for Sonic Youth is going to play both Lenny and Squiggy in a CGI type uh, performance. Yeah, a little switcheroo. I like it. Yeah, not oh. even CGI, just like cut takes. Oh, just cut takes and mirrors? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going okay. Old, going old school with this. I think that's a good call. And uh, listeners, if you're not familiar, you really should look up the work of both David Pimmer and Richard Edson uh, so that you can see what a good, good job we're doing. <laughs> Corey, Mm -hmm. are you ready to get into the minutia? Sure. All right. Rick, would you do us the great honor of singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Corey. Yep. This issue sure did have a lot of sound effects. Sure did. What were your favorites? I narrowed it down to two, and I think at the top of the heap for me is on page 27, the noise that it makes when one of Egghead's evil devices bounces off Power Man's super strong skin. Ah, and it makes a twink noise? Twink! That was pretty fun. Yeah, it's a cute little noise for a technical failure. A little egg breaking? Yes. I decided to go with a quintet of noises that I call the ooms. On page 14, we get thoom! On page 15, we get Badoom. On page 16, we get Choom. On page 22, we get Poom. And on page 30, we get Foom. That is a lot of ooms. It's a lot of ooms, and uh, I enjoyed, I think, all of them in different ways. It's a very percussive issue. Indeed. What was your other favorite sound effect? My other favorite sound effect was when Power Man has to rescue a guy from getting in trouble because he's concerned that the cobalt man is on top of the dude's car okay you mean george lucas because that dude looks like george lucas and i was like why is george lucas driving a ford still this is 77 yeah so i like the sound when power man picks up george lucas and throws him just bodily into (laughs) the street and he goes yeah (laughs) and i call it a sound effect because it's the a text treatment is done in the same way that they do the other explosion noises and things. There is another Power Man sound effect that's pretty good, which is Power Man trying to hold the Hulk back from smashing mm. the Cobalt Man because that would probably cause a nuclear explosion. Mm-hmm. And it is the concrete being torn up as Power Man is being pushed back by the Hulk and it just goes scrape scrunch. Mm-hmm. But it's it's nice. I enjoyed that. But yeah, I'm still going with the Um uh, Quintet. What do you feel like hitting next? Why don't we talk about clothes? Okay, Corey, sartorially speaking, what fashion in this issue did you feel was worthy of note? 
I had a, a couple items. Um, I think for me, the top of the list is on page six. There's a little inset panel that I call 70s group. Yeah, I had the same one. There was one specific dude in that group that I liked. He looks kind of like a more sinister Mr. Cotter. Mm-hmm. But he's wearing just a nice kind of slightly unbuttoned blue collared shirt and he's wearing a vest over it but he's got a pretty nice like afro going and also a sinister looking mustache that is shaved right under the nose and very very severe almost Joan Crawford-esque eyebrows Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot going on in that panel and you got another beardy guy and a lady with a orange halter top dress and big round like John Lennon mirrored glasses Uh uh-huh and we got J. Jonah Jameson in the background Mm -hmm. I don't know what he's doing there or why he's not demanding that he have pictures of Spider-Man on his desk, mm-hmm. but he seems to be there. Yeah, it's a it, it's a good looking group and they're dressed pretty fun. Mm-hmm. You got a green sweater, an orange dress and a purple vest. Mm-hmm. So you got some 70s colors going. Yeah. Other fashion probably worth mentioning. I think we already brought up the fact that Nighthawk's not putting a shirt back on. <laughs> Won't do it. Wants to stand out in the crowd. I think he's trying to show Luke Cage up. I think that might be the reason Luke Cage is considering quitting the group. Despite what he says about just not liking to work with a team. He, he's thinking, I want to be the guy with the most unbuttoned shirt on this team. Which is kind of weird because he does end up teaming up with Iron Fist later. Mm. Who also has Very potentially an even deeper V than Power Man. Mm-hmm. So He's going to show off that, that nice tattoo. Indeed. It is a nice tattoo. No, I th- I think, if anything, it's not a competitive thing, but as he's just like, a, man, Kyle's a creep. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll be hanging out with this shirtless creep. <laughs> Other notes about fashion, not specifically in this issue, but it is odd to me, the letters column is dominated by people writing letters in support of Valkyrie's new outfit that she received a few issues ago, which was, oddly enough, bringing up Iron Fist, created by John Byrne, Apparently, he did the character design for Val's new outfit. And at the time, John Byrne was primarily known as the artist on Iron Fist. Hmm. But it is weird to me that because they completely unceremoniously and without any real explanation brought back her old costume, not only do they have, I believe, three letters in support of her new costume and saying how much they liked it, they also have an insert, which is just a picture of her in her new outfit, which she is not wearing in this issue. It seemed like a really weird choice, and it makes me wonder if her new outfit will be back in subsequent issues once once Conway's not writing again. Hmm. I yeah, don't know. I don't know either. I had one other thing, too, which is the Red Rajas get-up. It's um, pretty dope-looking, I gotta say. Yeah, page 14, there's a, a panel where he's got, I guess what I would describe as armored, gilded hip waders. <laughs> like... Yeah. Boots that come literally all the way up to his hips. It's almost like he's wearing a pair of chaps that are made out of metal. Mm -hmm. Like golden gilded chaps and then a chest piece with this big like high collared neck thing all draped in flowy red fabrics. Mm -hmm. That is all affixed by a what I I think is probably the star of Kapistan that he's using as like a fastening brooch on his shoulder for this weird... He looks pretty badass. Scarf cloak that he has draped around himself. He looks super badass. As a matter of fact, let's use that as a segue into what was your favorite panel? Okay. Boy, I I really liked the artwork in this. It is. It's, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet, but it's Keith Giffen and then inks and colors by Klaus Jansen. 
I love Klaus Janssen's inks. He makes everything look more dramatic and a little bit more serious. Paint, painterly, almost, in mm-hmm. some aspects. Well, and I think he, you especially get that with him doing both the inks and the colors. Mm-hmm. It lends some continuity to that, and also continuity to he was the inker for Salbusema for the last several issues, mm-hmm. and it's nice. That panel where the Red Raja first shows up is really good, and on the same page there's another picture of the Red Raja who has that Kirby crackle thing on his hands and also coming out of his eyeballs in the form of flames. It's really cool looking. The only thing I don't like about his look is that he has a uh, a metal soul patch, <laughs> which is just kind of goofy. I thought it was like one of those like um, Egyptian like King Tut beard looking things. Isn't that just a metal soul patch? Well, no, because it comes from the chin, not the, uh, not the bottom of your lip. Yeah, maybe you're right. So it's more of like a Jim Neidhart style goatee than a soul patch. I don't know who that is, but that it sounds accurate. Uh, Jim the Anvil Neidhart. Oh, okay. Wrestleman. Yeah, noted Wrestleman Jim the Anvil Neidhart. Mm-hmm. There are two other panels that were in contention for me. One of them is the artwork is fine in it. It's not exceptional artwork, but it's the layout and it's what's happening in it. It's on page 16 and it's Egghead and he's using his machines, and he's staring straight ahead as he does the mad scientist equivalent of a no-look pass, where he's staring straight ahead and pushing without looking a button that makes a click noise as he's activating a machine. And it's just such a weird flex for him to be doing, where he's like, I don't even need to look at what button I'm pushing. I know where the buttons are. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, good for you, buddy. Yep. It's just a fun panel. I have a toss-up, a three-way toss-up between two artsy ones and a funny one. Let's make a fartsy sandwich <laughs> that is sandwiched by artsy bread. Okay. So <laughs> give me the first artsy. On page 17, it's uh, uh, Those Eyes. Those Eyes, I think, is my favorite panel. It is really, really good. It is a close-up of, I believe, Clea's eyeballs. And there is a star shining in one of them, and it is so good. And it has Klaus Janssen written all over it. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really good. It's, it's like, a long horizontal panel that is a close-up on Clea's eyes, and it's great. Super artsy. She's got a galaxy in her eyes, man. It's mm-hmm. crazy. Let's go with fartsy. What's your What's your funny one? Page seven. Hulk is wet. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good Hulk. one. <laughs> Keith Giffen does a great job illustrating the Hulk. Mm-hmm. I really like it. Yeah, it's the Hulk being wet. He's just jumped into the river and he's not happy about it. But he has jumped into the river at Nighthawk's request to nullify the Cobalt Man's nuclear explosion. He is wet and looking peeved about it. It's just like from the nose up, sticking out of the water, and he looks all bummed. Mm-hmm. You know who else does a great the Hulk? Jack Kirby, guy who created the character. You see it on the cover? This issue... They let Jack Kirby draw the Hulk's head, and it looks great. I mean, it's very stylized, it's very Jack Kirby looking, mm. but it's clearly the Hulk, and it makes me more annoyed that they redrew his head in the last issue. In this issue, yeah, Kirby's drawing both Power Man and the Hulk, and they both look really good. Mm-hmm. It's stylized in a very Kirby way, but it definitely doesn't detract from the issue, and it's a really dynamic cover, and yeah, I'm annoyed all over that they changed it in the last issue. That's fair. What's the other slice of bread in your fartsy sandwich? It's on the same page as Hulk is wet, and it is uh, Angry Egghead. Ooh, Angry Egghead. Let's take a look at him. Yeah. It is so creepy and so cool. It looks He's like got a... those... I, I, I'm going to mispronounce Is it pince-nay? 
the yeah, glasses with no, that. like the double monocle, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got a weird double monocle. Yeah, but he, he's got those that are obscuring his eyeballs and he's bellowing angrily. And yeah, it is a really dynamic, very artsy very, panel. Like hot and cool, like there's a really harsh, saturated light coming from the sort of top left of the panel. And then the whole, like, there's almost this diagonal line from top right to bottom left of the hot side and then the, like the cool side mm-hmm. yeah it's a real mcdlt it's probably better than that well i'm just saying it keeps the hot side hot and the cold side cold i don't know that that's accurate <laughs> okay you can't just believe everything they tell you we can't test it anymore they took away the mcdlt i think it kept the cool side too cold and the hot side too hot and they were afraid we couldn't handle that technology well also that's just kind of gross how is it gross? It's like, have you ever not baked a pizza enough and then you get a bite that's a little bit frozen? Mm. Gross. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess there's a reason the McDLT failed. Still, it's a pretty good panel. Good panel. Yeah. yeah. Every issue of a Defender's comic has a best defender and a worst offender. In this issue, who was your worst offender? So, it's awkward not... Being able to pick Kyle, I felt like he did an okay job. He did. So that just leaves other people I like that I have to (laughs) choose from. So it pains me to do so, but I think I have to go with Val for being the less effective of the the bunch. Yeah, I had the same choice. Uh, Really, all she does in this issue is get electrified by one of Egghead's eggs because she is really uncharacteristically cavalier about dealing with it. You have a known supervillain who is an evil inventor who is tossing a device at you. And her response is, You threaten my sword Dragon Fang with a child's toy? You must be a madman or a fool. That's fair, though, because she probably just thought it was one of those Kinder Surprise Sure, things. sure. Well, and yeah, maybe that was what he initially tossed at the Hulk. As dessert, after tossing the bowl of beans at him, he then tossed him like a chocolate kinder egg. Mm. And he's like, oh, now Hulk's so cozy. That could be. In Val's defense, though, even though she does get my vote for worst, the way she calls out Egghead as he's wandering around Strange's hallways, muttering to himself about how great he is. And she's like, hey, asshole, what's your name? What's your business here? And fucking surrender. Yeah. (laughs) That's a super badass way to apprehended yeah let's let's take a look at the exact quote there silence eh? trickery may have brought you victory against the hulk villain but it won't win your battle with me name yourself declare your purpose and surrender Mm -hmm. pretty good it also looks like she starts by just yelling her name valkyrie i think that's supposed to be egghead yelling it but i like it better if she just says valkyrie i like it too I'm going to start entering a room by yelling my own name more often. It's like a gauntlet. Wait, I mean, do the... they do that in gauntlet? No, just the, how they... They just talk about themselves in the third person. Mm-hmm. I'm and not going to I'm not gonna just be game. saying, Pub needs food badly. I'm going to like... You do say that, like, Well, often I need food badly, Corey. <laughs> okay, it's not the first thing you say <laughs> when you walk in the room, usually. Right. Okay. But from now on, the first thing I say when I walk into a room is going to be, Hub! <laughs> It's like a reverse norm. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Be your own norm. Is that mm. self-help book? Yeah. Start writing that. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, I also had Valkyrie as the worst defender. Although, 
she still did okay, although she did get incapacitated by the villain almost immediately because she underestimated him. Yep. Conversely, who was the best defender? Ooh, this was a toss-up for me. Okay. So, on one hand, I want to give it to Hulk for listening to his friend and defusing the bomb that is the Cobalt Man. I can see where you would say that, although you do need to take into account that the friend he was listening to was Kyle. Right. So... And I don't think you can necessarily say it's good policy to listen to Kyle. Yep. And so due to that, which I have a drawback with this one too, but due to that, I, I think I'm going to go with Red Guardian because Ooh. she actually saved the day. You could you can argue it's Clea that facilitated sure. the saving of the day. Sure. But Red Guardian's the one who got into Cobalt Man's brain and mucked around in there and facilitated him blowing himself up along with the villain. That said, she doesn't understand freedom, so... <laughs> right. It's a tough call. Well, and that is why I went with Luke Cage. Oh, he said good he, things, too. He, he did a great job. The reason I went with Luke Cage, first of all, Egghead throws an egg at him and it just bounces off of him with a harmless, fun sound effect. And then he beats the shit out of Egghead, who, despite the fact that he is fun in this issue, he is canonically a real piece of shit. And Luke Cage beating him up is a net positive. Agreed. And he really beats the shit out of him. And it's fun, and he seems like he enjoys doing it. The other main reason I went with Luke Cage is because he tosses George Lucas aside onto a pile and calls him a dumb butt. I really liked that, that turn of phrase. It made me very, very happy. There was a lot of fun turn of phrase in this book, and I think that was partly why it was so much more inoffensive than the last issue. There were a number of just really fun turns of phrases. It had more fun with the idea of the comic book. You get Conway saying things, Now, through the magic of comic books, we take you to the scene itself where we find things like that. But you also get, yes, Luke Cage saying, Man, these dumb butts sure get me down. I had a dollar. Yeah. And I think you certainly liked the, uh, I'm sorry, spoiler alerts for those of you, which I guess is everybody because I don't think it's going to be out yet, who haven't listened to the Howard the Duck special that we just did. You and Lisa liked it a lot less than I did. So you might have taken some catharsis for George Lucas being tossed aside <laughs> and called a dumb butt. Yeah. Good stuff. That's why I went with Luke Cage. That's fair. Calls yeah. people dumb butts. Had a good showing. Tells Kyle uh, he's got a bad team and uh, beats the shit out of Egghead. Good call all around, Luke yep. Cage. All right. In every issue of a Defenders comic, there is at least one character who's just gotta be a sucker, who acts in a way that is contrary to their previously established characterization or motivation. To quote the Fat Boys from the movie Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. In this issue, who just had to be a sucker? I had to go with a duo of suckers, and I had the Ooh. the Shlemiel and Shlemazel themselves because. Literally, like, a page before Rhino and Solar are like, fuck you, Egghead, we're gonna kill you because you were just torturing us and now you want us to go back to work. And then a page later, they're like, he's grabbing our pubic hair, but we like it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I saw that as he can murder us with a whim at any time, so we'd better do what he says. No, no, the, the, they give the rationale of, hey, he's probably gonna win and it's better to be on a winning team, so... Even though we're enslaved to the dude, at least we're on the winning side. Yeah, it's, I guess. It's a shitty, weird switcheroo, and I didn't care for it, and I think they're suckers. Okay. I went with the Hulk. Mm. He is so pliable in this issue. And I'm not just talking about the Snuggie thing. I'm talking about 
when because he, he is pissed. Kyle. Yes, he is pissed off. He wants to smash the Cobalt Man. Kyle says, "No, don't smash the Cobalt Man. Do what I tell you to do." It's this weird thing too, where what is happening in the panel and what is happening with the words in the panel are totally at odds. Kyle pops up and says, "No, Hulk, not hit him. I want you to carry him." And Hulk goes, "What?" And he says, "Listen for one second. All right, Birdnose. Hulk will listen. Birdnose is Hulk's friend." But he looks so angry as he is saying, "Birdnose is Hulk's friend," well, which he probably is. yeah, I would be pretty angry if that was my friend group too. <laughs> but then Hulk says. Birdnose wants Hulk to bring Blue Man to water. Hulk thinks this is stupid, but Hulk will do what Birdnose wants. That's not the Hulk. No. No, that's a good point. That's a sucker move right there. Especially when what Birdnose is specifically telling him to do is to not smash something that he wants to smash. Not typically in no. Hulk's wheelhouse. No. To not smash what he wants to smash. No, smashing what he wants to smash. That is in his wheelhouse. Yes. Just filling up most of it. There's no room for wheels. It's all filled with smashed smashing things. what you want to smash. Yeah. Corey. Yep. <laughs> you may have forgotten about this, but every episode has a <laughs> pie not made out of steel. Uh-huh. In this issue, what was your pie not made out of steel? What metaphor did you enjoy the most? My favorite pie not made out of steel was luke cage referring to the hulk as a big green cheese <laughs> that was too powerful like a stilton or something i don't know but... yeah yeah like and normally you think of it as a blue cheese but really often the mold that is in there is is uh, more of a blue green mm-hmm. well it was a really difficult decision for me to make but of the many metaphors <laughs> that i enjoyed in this issue i decided to go with one that is partly a visual metaphor but uh it's the rhino and he's got a couple within a single uh, word bubble. He's talking to noted Schlemiel, Solar, mm-hmm. and he says, Watch your mouth long hair before I replace it with a fistful of knuckles. I'll peel these doors like an orange. This very evocative imagery. Peel these doors like an orange. Peel these doors like an orange and replace your mouth with a fistful of knuckles. Knuckle sandwich. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps, uh, given his uh, background, a knuckle pierogi. Could be. Mm. Not bad. Yeah. On short notice. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. (laughs) Corey, we all know that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? I think in this issue, the Hulk's rules were that when you want to try and influence somebody to do something that they might not normally do, rather than telling them just, hey, don't do that, you want to try and redirect them. Okay. And so that was Nighthawk's successful strategy, where Hulk's like, I'm going to smash the shit out of the Cobalt Man. Okay. And he's like, yeah, that's cool. But before you do that, can you just pick him up and drop him in the water? And right. And Hulk's like, okay. Sure. We all love to smash the Cobalt Man, the Hulk. Mm-hmm. How about, though, instead, or before you smash him, we, we do try this. It's like smashing, carrying somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and also, I'm your friend. Mm-hmm. So, you know, be friendly. Right. And redirect. Right. I think that's the Hulk's rules. I think it would have been maybe more effective if he had prefaced it by saying, I am the Macho Man and I am your friend. <laughs> well, it's, it goes without saying. Hey, always the best strategy. It's always the best. I went with something that was also from that particular scenario in the comic book, but I think that the Hulk's takeaway was, if you think that a nuclear bomb is about to detonate... 
put it underwater. Mm. It's just a safety tip. Uh, like the kind you might see in a G.I. Joe PSA. Sure. If you come across, like you, you and your friend are out riding your bikes, you find a nuclear bomb. Throw it in the water. What do you do? Water. Yeah, throw it in the water. Mm-hmm. And everything will be fine. Best case scenario. And that's the Hulk's rules. Now then, what Wong doings was Wong doing in the year of our Lord, 1977, and the month of our Lord, January? So, January of 1977 was a less eventful month than some uh, previous months in which, mm-hmm. which Wong had been up to many things that we've talked about. Um, really, this was more so the, the hunkering down in, in Steve's compound and enjoying some, some quality time after dinner, watching watching television. Maybe uh, curling up with a bowl of beans and a Snuggie. Bowl of beans and a Snuggie, one for each, one for Wong, one for Strange. Nice. And, you know, fortunately, this coincided with them for the the short but powerful run of one of TV's most watched entertainment programs ever, which was the miniseries Roots. Ah. So this was really educational for Strange because, you know, though he was a man of, of book learning, his sure grasp of the nuances of, of history and, and, and the slave trade weren't great. And so, you know, starting on the, the 23rd of the month and then wrapping up on the 30th with the, with the end of the series, he came away with a really questioning his privilege. Wow. And then he woke up the next day and that was all like, ah, basically forgotten. But yeah, but it, it was a real opportunity for him. I bet it led to him having some very awkward and embarrassing conversations with Luke Cage, who was hanging out at his house a lot right yeah luke cage was not super happy about everybody wanting to talk to him about roots yeah i can see that being the case yeah now it's interesting that you bring up television because that did play a large role in the events uh of wong and dr strange for january of 1977 in addition to watching the powerful miniseries roots based on the alex haley book they also partook of some lighter fare of entertainment. Wong was up late watching Saturday Night Live when he started laughing uproariously. And Steve Strange came out and was like, Wong, what's wrong? What is this harsh barking noise that I hear? (laughs) And uh, it turned out that Wong was watching the Coneheads. And he's like, Steve, you gotta see this. And Steve came in, and he didn't get the joke at first. And he was like, Wong, you were right to bring this to my attention. I had thought that Egghead had been dead, but apparently he's back! Um. Quickly! To the space station! And Wong is like, no, 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 That's this is a TV show. This is, th- that's not Egghead. I know he has a similar shaped head, but, uh, and Steve didn't believe him initially. Wong was like, okay, I've got some contacts at NBC. We're gonna go and check this out. Uh, I'm gonna introduce you to the cast and they'll explain to you What's happening in this? And so Steve and Wong went down to Saturday Night Live. Wong introduced Steve to Dan Aykroyd. And uh, the two oddly hit it off mm. really, really well. Steve played it off that he got that it was a joke. Because he, he once they arrived there, he's like, oh, I see. Yes, comedy. I get jokes. Jokes are great. Dan Aykroyd was fascinated by Steve's interactions with the supernatural, which was something that had always fascinated Dan Aykroyd. And Steve brought up, he's like, I'm pretty much the best at punching ghosts. I don't know if you know that. Dan Aykroyd's like, ghosts? And Steve's like, 
Oh yes, ghosts. Let me tell you a little something about these tiny flame ghosts that I know and the shenanigans that they get up to. And thus, the concept of ghost blowjobs was introduced to Dan Aykroyd, who later based the entire script to the movie Ghostbusters <laughs> around the idea. And wow. that was all because of an episode of Saturday Night Live that aired on January 15th, 1977. And that was what Wong was doing in what may have been some Wong doings in 1977. Damn, January. Thank you so much for joining us, dear listeners. This was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed yourself as much as we enjoyed ourselves with this admittedly subpar comic book. Mm. We will be back next week with another episode pertaining to the New Teen Titans. Find out what they're up to with their undersea adventures with a shirtless Aqualad. And we'll be back in two weeks with another Defenders issue. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you would like to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts, I would appreciate that. Uh, it's a good way for people to find out about us, and it's easier for them to find if we get good reviews. So, you know, thanks for doing that. If you would like to donate monetarily to us, which is certainly something that I would appreciate, you can do that at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you will get access to a lot of exclusive content, including the recently recorded and aforementioned Howard the Duck the Movie episode of What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show, uh, as well as the other episodes of that, which are hosted by myself and Lisa, uh, in which we talk about the comic book Howard the Duck. I also am going to be adding some new donor tiers soon, so you can take a look at those and see if they are something you would be interested in. Like levels, not like you punched people. No, I'm not going to make them cry. Okay. I might make them cry tears of joy when they find out that by donating at a certain level, I will mail them a comic book from my personal collection with a note attached to it describing what I found interesting and why this was a fun comic book and I am sending it to them. That sounds lovely. I think that would be a nice time for I think there's going to be some other tiers, too. That's just one of the ideas that I had. If you have got good ideas of things that you would like from me, then let me know. You can also follow us on Instagram, which is a page that is managed by Lisa. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. We're all up in the internets and, of course, in your hearts and minds. So look for us there, and we'll be there, waving at you, giving you a big thumbs up. Hey, guys. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> See? We'll, we'll influence you. In a friendly way. Sure. We won't grab you by the short and curlies. Nope. Even if that's something that you like. That's just not the kind of relationship we have with you. No, that's a different tier entirely. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm not kidding. No. No. Corey, this is why you don't get to run the pitch. <laughs> well, just saying. Okay. Comic books don't buy themselves. <laughs> that's... Uh, all right. Well, we're going to have to re rethink some of these uh, donor levels. Anyway... That, thanks. <laughs> Sorry. You're welcome. <laughs> Bye. Bye. And they knew it. Advertisement. Captain Marvel and the Energy Crisis. 
Neuron Nelson, once a respected physics professor at Narvard University, now turned mad scientist, plots for world conquest in his underground laboratory, an abandoned subway station in New York. My neutron neuralizer ray will give this world a real energy crisis. This ray neutralizes people's nervous system and saps them of all of their energy. <laughs> Kids have the most energy. I'll test my ray on them. Aww. And then... Boy, do I feel weak. Oh, I'm so tired I can't even bite my hostess cupcake. Good! Now I'm ready to go to Washington and get the president! Captain Marvel, who had been relentlessly tracking Neuron Nelson, spots him with his ultra-photomic energy detector. That creep! He stopped them from eating that moist devil's food cake! What a fiend! I'll short-circuit your plans, Neuron. Your next stop is jail, not Washington. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to deprive the kids of chocolatey icing and creamed filling. I was only testing my ray. Well, Neuron, you flunked that task. Ow! Neuron, you'll never be successful when you try to come between a kid and his hostess cupcake. Yeah, delicious. Wow, great. You'll get a big delight in every bite. Of Hostess Cupcakes. That was not a bad one. That wasn't terrible. And I will say that cupcakes are probably my favorite of the Hostess treats. I like the orange ones the best. Well, the orange ones are the best. Oh, yeah. I have an accord. Indeed. Mm. Did you drink all your beer? Yeah. Say your patented catchphrase. We drank it all my beer. <laughs> there we go. Okay.